Welcome to Moving the Rock. Whether sales is all you do or only part of what you do, the strategies and tactics of success can often feel split between two realities. You can become someone you're not to earn the recognition and praise of people you don't respect, or you can try to figure it out on your own, knowing you'll underperform your potential. We're here to offer a third way. The idea that you can't have success without compromise is just wrong. You don't have to compromise to win in the long term. You can play the game in such a way that you win in the short term and the long term. Through our hard lessons learned, we can shift your way of thinking and create a better way. I'm Chris, founder of SightShift. And I'm James, founder of Florist Group. If you're tired of the status quo, we're here to help you move the rock on your career, your business, and your life. Welcome. All right. Uh, we're back. And Chris, I want to share an observation where right? we all kind of have been, been hearing about the great resignation. Oh, I thought you were going to say how handsome I am. Well, <laughs> we've got to move to video one of these days. <laughs> It'd be so much stress, though, on me, man. Uh, what's he going to do next? <laughs> I didn't even let you get started. <laughs> how many letters am I going to get? Is my Twitter feed going to blow up? Oh. I love it. No, it's cool, brother. It's all cool. It's all good. This is um, our wrap-up episode for the year. And, um, you know, we've been doing research. And we've actually been looking at uh, our enterprise accounts and looking at the events that trigger working relationships with our enterprise accounts. And what we've found is a very, very strong correlation so far um, in one particular type of event. And it's usually an event or, or a, a plan that they have put in place to hire a significant number of people relative to where they are. Mm. So if it's a concept stage um, startup, they might be hiring more people than exist in the company. If it's seed stage and they just receive funding, same thing may be true. Um, if, it's, if they're an expansion stage um, or um, acquisition stage, it's enough people to create questions about um, are they doing it effectively? Uh, can they ramp people up quick enough? Can they make the experience good enough that they'll stay? And then after they stay, can they become um, force multipliers or growth multipliers in the context of the organization rather than just showing up and doing the minimum to get by, right? All these things that we think about as as employers. And I thought it might be interesting to talk about this in the context of, you know, what we're doing right now. We're moving into a brand new year. Dude, I, I love it. I, you know, I, I have read this before and I think it's worth reading again because repetition is the master teacher. It's very short. This is from the book In Everyone Culture by Robert Keegan, the adult development specialist, retired from Harvard, that's did the longest, done the longest study ever on how adults develop and grow opening paragraph in his book on becoming a deliberately developmental organization says this in an ordinary organization most people are doing a second job no one is paying them for 
in businesses large and small, in government agencies, schools and hospitals, in for-profits and non-profits, in any country in the world, most people are spending time and energy covering up their weaknesses, managing other people's impressions of them, showing themselves to their best advantage, playing politics, hiding their inadequacies, hiding their uncertainties, hiding their limitations, hiding. Right. And, uh, you know, it's one thing that you've got people, and, 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 and I would say in this case, it's not that people are the enemy. All leaders have insecurities. The higher you go in their leadership, usually it's a lot of proving, but replete in the organization is what he's talking about here, hiding. All leaders have insecurities. People aren't the enemy here. But what happens in high-growth organizations when they're hiring a lot of people, everything that they would be bringing into that culture exacerbates what's already there. So if there is, uh, you, you know, some kind of idiosyncrasy in their culture that's unhealthy or damaging or dangerous, and let's say they've got 50 people but they're hiring 125 this next year because they're on a massive growth curve and they've just closed whatever round. What they're going to face is pitfall after pitfall after pitfall. Um, and, you know, the thought is we'll just make up for it with money and throw bodies at this. And, and we know that whatever you've got a little bit of, like yeast, it spreads through the organization. <laughs> well, and I think what's interesting is, you know, when, you, when we speak with executives, at least on our side of the table, when we speak to executives um, and we ask them, you know, for example, three questions that, that we love to ask. What are you doing right now to develop healthy leaders? Mm. What are you doing right now proactively to develop scalable teams? What are you doing right now to ensure that you're cultivating a growth culture? So three big questions. And, you know, out of context, there's not an executive on the planet that would say healthy leaders don't matter or that would say scalable teams don't matter or that would say a growth culture doesn't matter. But in context, in the midst of the challenge, many would say, you know what, I don't have time to worry about that, right? It's not a high enough priority for me to sweat. Mm. And they would um, fall back to the common excuses, the common misconceptions, this idea of let's see, let's just throw shit against the wall to see what sticks, or I trust my people, they'll figure it out, or I trust my gut, I'll figure it out. But all of this in the absence of a thoughtful plan, and it is interesting that this kind of thinking is, even though it has to do with optimizing the largest expense that an organization has, Right, 40 to 80% of revenue goes to supporting your people. It's oftentimes the last thing that, that, it, that leaders think about. Yeah, and only getting larger as the companies have to compete with raising wages. You know, and, and you think about this, when is the pain point so intense that they do think about it? You know, that old saying people don't change until the pain of not changing is greater than the pain of staying the same. Well, sadly, it's usually when some massive financial target or botched launch has occurred. Right. Some terribly divisive or culturally explosive thing 
is happening in the environment, uh, some kind of, you know, consistent offense towards good humanistic values. So we've got botched, you know, launch or a, a missing uh, a financial target. Some kind we, of crisis. Yeah, with this, this cultural issues that occur, you know, all of these things that happen that we would call crisis. We also have confrontations. So when you get these severe conflicts on the executive team or between founders, uh, the, these relationships that you start to either feel like are impassable or you've got to mitigate around or, you know, you get nuclear on them, as they say. So you've got crisis, you've got conflict. And then I think the biggest pain point that is the most understated, confusion. People don't know how to show up into the sweet spot of who they are, positioned for success, developed to their utmost potential. Mm. And, you know, you and I as individuals, we're passionately committed to never not being both of those. You and I want to be at our best and develop ourselves like crazy. We want to make sure we're continually paying attention to how we're positioned for success. And there are people out there like that. And oftentimes it's the leadership that is like that. But it doesn't mean everybody else is. You know, we carry around personal growth and development and being at our best like a bowling ball. You know, we've used this analogy before. Uh, but most people are carrying around their growth and development like a tennis ball. And so they're maybe not as doggedly committed to positioning and developing themselves for success. That's what leadership has to do. They have to invest in the people being positioned in a way that they're going to show up and, and make the biggest impact in their lane and feel amazing about the work that they get to do. And they're going to be developed to not leave potential on the table. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think um, you're describing probably the most common thing that we see, which is oftentimes companies in crisis. Um, I would say also we have clients that um, are, for example, in the midst of a transformation mm. and they want to enable that transformation. And so they live on the curiosity curve. The folks you described were living on that, on the complacency curve. And for anybody listening, if you want to, if you want the graphic that I'm talking about, just hit me up and uh, we'll send it. But it's this idea of mastering the gap between curiosity and complacency. We find that market leaders tend to operate on that curiosity curve. So they have initiatives like transformation. They have initiatives like leadership development. They have initiatives like emerging leader development. Uh, but we, what we find in those situations is while the organizations are willing, the measures that they invest in tend to be half measures. Mm -hmm. Let's hire a coach for this person over here. Um, and, and, and we'll hire a coach for this person over here. We'll get some training for this innovation team over here. But what doesn't happen is the entire organization doesn't commit to an ethos, doesn't commit to a program that is aligned with their core values and positioned to enable their mission that everyone learns and everyone um, practices and everyone can help everyone else with the, this idea of repetition and um, application and so forth. So the organization misses out on a holistic plan uh, in exchange for um, lots of 
you know, singles and doubles here yeah. and there. I, I like your term half measures there. Uh, you, you know, and the result of the half measures is you get sloppy at doing the things you could be strategically brilliant at. Uh, you, you know, we talk about this kind of research all the time. You had sent me something a month or so ago with McKinsey Insights, something about nine things for the future. But one of them was culture is the secret sauce, right? And, and I'm watching it happen with my 19-year-old who uh, is considering, you know, changing jobs because of the culture of the workplace. Oh, yeah. And culture is that secret sauce. It's the last differentiating difference. The problem is you don't just, you know, say I'm going to do culture better. You get your leaders healthy. You get your people positioned for success, scalable teams. Then you start strategically doing the actions that activate and build a healthy culture. Right. And, you know, it's as doable as going to the gym and working out. You can be sloppy, half measured, or you can be strategic and intentional. And those that want to do that, that are on the curiosity curve, and they're like, how good can this get? And that's... That's the most fun. Uh, you get the shared languages in the culture. You get the shared practices. You know, this this culture takes on something unique and beautiful. It's something special. Uh, and a lot of people in their lives, as they live their lives, will not experience a beautiful catalytic environment like that. Those that do, in a healthy way, get addicted to it and seek to experience right. it many times over. Right. Right, I think, and I think the observation that we're making is that uh, just because we've experienced it, you don't have to hope for it. You don't have to roll the dice and hope to get lucky. You can actually proactively build that kind of culture on a team by team by team level until you until it becomes enterprise wide. I think the other thing that you're bringing up for me is, you know, with the Great Resignation. Before the Great Resignation, there was this theme, uh, an observation that. You know, the number one re reason people leave their jobs is because of their manager, mm. right? But that's the manager, you know, forcing good people to leave is a symptom, and I think in our experience, of a culture that's dysfunctional, one that, or, or one that has been allowed to evolve, but not one that has been proactively developed. And the thing that I think that you and I would say that what differentiates a growth culture from any other type of culture is this idea that growth is the mastery of change. And so having a growth culture means developing a culture that's resilient, mm. that's aligned, that's well-balanced, that's agile, uh, a, a culture that embodies this concept of grit so that change isn't something to be feared. Change isn't something to be hidden, to hide from. Change isn't something that threatens us, threatens our position, threatens our reputation, threatens our job. Change is something to be expected. It's something to be embraced. And it's something that we all get together to work on. We don't hang people out to dry, right? It's, it's a, it's a um, holistic view. And it's really this, when I talked about this idea of being growth multipliers or force multipliers in an organization, it's this idea that together we can do anything. But most organizations' cultures are built on siloed fiefdoms, mm -hmm. which create 
separation between people. Uh, they're highly politicized, even if we don't want to admit it. And that, that, that um, codifies the separation and really creates an environment where we're, we're all out for ourselves and we operate with the zero-sum mentality and it goes from there. Yeah, oftentimes the people that are able to lead in those kind of environments, the fiefdoms, they emulate the characteristics that are going to completely ruin your culture. Um, they're not so much the paragraph that I read opening up with the hiding side of things. They're more on the proving side of things, but they're very strategic and calculating to an extent oftentimes they are manipulative. Uh you know, the, the greatest stereotype of that character right now in popular culture would be uh, uh, Logan Roy of Succession, the dad, mm. the CEO, right? <laughs> um, so, so let's say he's a level 10 of that. A everyone that's ever worked at an, in an organization, um, you know, multiple organizations over their lifetime knows somebody like this, even if they're not a yeah. level 10. It's you know, the they divide be... and conquer, you know, exactly. divide and conquer concept, even among his kids and his family. Dude, craziness. And so maybe, you know, somebody who's at a level three of that or a four of that or a five of that, but he is intentionally keeping things destabilized mm -hmm. to keep the power. Right. Um, and I actually, I think I heard him say that in an interview, like he was talking about the character that he plays, the role he plays, how he plays that role intelligently. And that's one of the factors. He's keeping people destabilized. And so, you know, we can actually use very precise, accurate language with our measurements on what's happening underneath that behavior. Uh, and ultimately, it's a specific, definable insecurity. But that insecurity ends up being one of the most shaping influences on many, many, mm. many, many cultures right. because these fiefdoms are allowed to be built. Right. Well, uh, the listeners may know, and I go back to this just because it it gives some credibility to my the, the statements gonna, that's going to follow. Uh, I invested about 10 years uh, with a life coach um, following my trans the transition in my career. And it wasn't because I was really dumb and... <laughs> They had to repeat things over and over to me, although that was part of it. Um, it was really because the things I was learning were so power—they were, they were so powerful, and they had so many different ways of being applied. I really had to experience situationally the application of all these amazing kind of insights yeah. across the organization. And the reason I bring this up is what I learned from this master level coach that I engaged, he just said, he said, Jimmy, you know, because he's, he was helping me develop my leadership acumen. And he really, he said to me, look, there's no difference between a leader, a great leader and a great coach. You, you built the same skill set, And at that moment, I was actually realizing that as I was going through the training um, and my own coaching. And what he said to me, has never left me and it's been the most powerful thing I've ever learned is that he said every coaching relationship he's ever had over the decades he's been coaching, every issue a person brought to the table had to do with one thing, one thing, their own personal insecurities, mm. right? Everything that haunts us, everything that creates friction in our lives has to do with and emulates from 
our own personal insecurities. And the job of the coach is to really discover what insecurities, okay, what insecurities today are driving James's behavior, right? Because even as a top performing rep, and I wasn't always a top performing rep, but even when I was, it wasn't driven by desire to be amazing and and healthy and holistic and resilient. It was driven by this need to prove myself, right? Yeah. And that's what caused me to burn out. So, and that need to prove myself was born from an insecurity that said, hey, I'm probably not worthy. And so every day I had to go out and decide whether today I was gonna be worthy or not, whether I was gonna be a winner or a loser. And that obviously created a very dysfunctional, it was dysfunctional for me, it was great for my employers because <laughs> I knew exactly what buttons to push to move me forward. Uh, but I love this focus on insecurity. I can't, uh, I can't stress enough how important it is. And it's really interesting that the tool you've built uh, is named the Identity Fear Quotient. I'd, and I'd, maybe what you can do is to help us understand what is the, what is the connection between insecurity and fear and then what does that have to do with proving and hiding? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, when you said loser, though, I did picture Disney's The Kid where he's like, I am not a loser. <laughs> uh, the, so like one of my kids works at this nursery, plants, not little kids. And uh, she's totally a, a plant lady. And she knows, like she just knows, I got to repot this plant. I got to water it. I've got to take care of it where? At the root level. How does she know to take care of her root level? By what she sees at the fruit level or the leaves, right? So what what most people are doing, we, we, we recognize we all have insecurities. Everybody has insecurities. And anybody who says they don't have insecurities is completely lying and fooling themselves, uh, whether they're knowingly lying or, or, or lying to themselves. So we all have insecurities, but how do people deal with it? Most people try to deal with their insecurities by working on the fruit, the leaves. How weird would it be if I was like cutting my daughter's plants, the leaves of them, take a pair of scissors. She's like, what are you doing? This is so wrong. This is so unhealthy. You're ruining my plants. And yet that's what so often happens to all of us in our lives, but especially at work. The leaves are continually... Uh, trimmed. I'm not talking about like pruning. I'm talking about the leaves being cut. Like you got to force yourself into this role that you're not really positioned for success for. We, we trick ourselves all the time about the work that we'll do well, or we're in a place that, you know, we're trying to work our way onto a team and feel good about it. But our insecurities are telling us we don't belong on these teams. You know, so we, right. we have these ways that we work through it, these nine fears, but ultimately what it's doing is it's measuring the root the root is where the fear is shaping the behavioral response, which is the proving or hiding, showing up too big or too small, withdrawing too much hiding, uh, not putting yourself out there, or too aggressively trying to control and right. dominate. So what's so powerful can, can, is to get that root level. Awareness. So can I hold, hold this for a second here? Because I just want to yeah. emphasize something, just because I've, I've used this uh, to better understand myself and I've explained it to clients, um, leaders who we're working with. The, the thing that is powerful here is, is that the behavior is the symptom mm -hmm. of 
the root insecurity. And when I, when I help leaders think about how they can be better coaches, my focus is always on, look, if you recognize the behavior, the, the wrong thing to do would be, so for example, somebody has poor time management. The wrong thing to do would be to enroll them in a time management class. Hmm. It's like, it's like, it's like taking Tylenol to address a headache when maybe you should be thinking about what's causing the headache. Mm-hmm. How do I change my, how do I change my life to address the stressors that are creating this headache for me on a regular chronic basis? What we have to do as leaders, when we identify behavior that we'd like to change and even that our employee would like to change, we have to go to the root cause, the insecurity. Now, as a coach or as a leader, we are not trained to do that. That is not natural for us. It's not natural for leaders. And tell me where you get this training because I've had clients that have been through decades of leadership development at Harvard Business School and never once talked about these insecurities. The work is, now they may have courses that I may not be aware of, but the point is most of what leaders have access to is the rational how to get shit done. But it's not about the human factor and what is actually preventing people from learning how to get this stuff done. It's the mindset that forms from the insecurity that they don't even know they have or that they know they have, but they can't escape. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, the training isn't out there. It is... Uh, and, and you know that. I mean, there's so many research uh, things that have quantified why leadership development fails so often and is so terrible. And in our language that we're using here today, it's because it doesn't deal at the root level. And what's so crazy and wild and insane to me is businesses say they appreciate growth and impact. The best way to ensure you're not going to have growth and impact is to have a bunch of leaders copying each other. When you take somebody who hockey sticks their growth, their impact, their ability to influence, that is somebody who who does not have to copy other humans. They actually are able to learn from other people, but they are thinking creatively in such a way that it is outside of the confines and the boxes that it's, most it's people... It's their vision, it's their ambition, it's their curiosity. They put, they created the formula, put it together, and they're going. Exactly. They're totally unique. And it does not even have to be a team leader, CEO, or founder. We, we have seen this happen within an organization, somebody who is administratively supporting on the lowest end of the hierarchy, client services, go from completely inward-focused and insecure to so impactful they can win awards in their organization. It doesn't matter where you are. You can show up and be one of these people. How? When you do the work at the root level. I mean, that's why you've got so many companies where a lot of VPs uh, have turned into glorified uh, PowerPoint deck makers. And they're making slides for someone else above them. Uh, And so now you've got so many abstractions away from what it looks like to be a real live human being brimming with impact, with energy. And this is – some people listen to this could be like, okay, no, this is a personality thing, extrovert, introvert. No, no, no. You're still you, however that looks like. 
what wire you know what energizes you, how you're wired up, how you engage with people. We're talking about being in that place where you're no longer held back by these two fears that so many people are. Right. Am I doing a good job and do people like me? Right, right. It's not personality is is one thing. Personality is not character. Personality is not the decisions you make and the actions you take. Right? There's personality is the flavor of the decisions and that's the flavor of the action. Am I dominant? Am I passive? Am I intellectual? Am I, you know, whatever. But the point is what drives the decisions we make and the actions we take and ultimately the outcomes we create are the insecurities that create our own unique identity. And you've got, if you want to change the identity of your business, you have to change the identity of the human beings within your business. I think that's that's what I'm hearing from you, Chris. But I, I have a I have a even bigger observation to make, just based on a recent conversation with a client. So I'm going to let you continue before I Ooh. before well, I do. I'm really excited to hear it. I'll just make this one quick comment that when we're using the word identity, we are using it as a term to explain someone knowing who they are more than the roles they fulfill, the relationships they have, the race, gender, creed, sexuality. All of these things that in popular nomenclature we use to say are a part of our identity, mm-hmm. none of them make up the whole of your identity. And that is so a deep to, philosophical yeah. concept that I just thought, it's quick comment. Hard to, but it's hard to get it. So it's like, are you saying like if you said, Jimmy, who are you? And I, and I said, I'm a father. Well, that's a role. Yes. That's not really my identity. Yeah, exactly. What is my identity? I yeah. Gotcha. Because if you wrap up your identity in the role, then when it's going good as a father— you feel good. When it's going bad, you feel bad because you've forgotten you are more than the role. Right. And by the way, and, and it took me a long time to come to my answer for my identity. And it's not something we're going to get into today. But mm. you're right. It is it is a challenge to get to. But the work is helpful because al- along the way, you're recognizing the insecurities that... Um, that are holding you back. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what was your thing you said with a client? Yeah, well, you know, man, I'll tell you, you can tell, now you and I, we do work with venture capitalists, private equity firms, investors, um, not just with startups, but with, you know, through mergers and acquisitions and so forth. We tend to do work with businesses that are going through big changes, right? So this should not come as a surprise to anybody. but I'll tell you one of the one of the key things that let me know what a leader's insecurity was was her focus on becoming a an organization that was driven by product development. So her big passion was product led growth, PLG. Mm-hmm. And now we see this a lot in organizations that want to maximize their multiples because the belief is that by investing in products that can be sold over and over again, you're building high margin, predictability, repeatability into the business, and that is something that the market will pay for. And you can actually, excel, if you can accelerate growth in a model like that, you can actually generate value for the business that, didn't ex- that wouldn't exist if your growth was less rapid. Um, but that is, the insecurity that that let me know that she had was, the insecurity around the fact that she knew product better than she knew people. Mm. 
And she was much more willing to invest in product-led growth and allow her people to flounder mm-hmm. than she was to invest in both. Mm-hmm. Why not invest in both? Mm-hmm. Yeah, people, I mean, it's cliche, but true. It's people, products, process, and you got to have them all. And why not invest in both? Because if, you know, but astute for you to recognize the insecurity because underneath the irrationality of that is an insecurity. We're not rational Mm -hmm. beings. And that's what, you know, we were talking about a lot of the other trainings that are out there leadership wise. They're trying to make a human a rational being. And you do not analyze or rationalize your way into personal wholeness from your insecurities, creative breakthroughs, market making strategies, you you know, all of these things that we celebrate uh, don't have to be so exceptional. Well, and I'll tell you what, and I'll tell you, why do people buy those? Leaders and executives buy those because they make sense when you read the brochure. Mm -hmm. They make sense when somebody walks you through the research. So that what they're doing is they're making that buying decision, that commitment based on the sales process. They're not making the decision, doing the re- making the decision based on research done on the outcomes. Find a leadership development program that can demonstrate predictable, repeatable outcomes. And I don't care if the outcomes are um, objective or subjective. You know, one of our clients um, who for the last 10 years has been one of my best referral sources. You know, the, the big win that we got in the first couple of weeks of working together was how are things, I asked how things are going. He's like, great. People are fighting a lot less. (laughs) (laughs) They're fighting less, but, and you know what happened? We actually, we actually created the most profitable uh, year that that company had ever had because of the higher levels of efficiency and effectiveness. Now, that was a way that we could quantify what was happening, but profit is a lagging indicator. What was the leading indicator? People were not just thinking about their own petty desires and their own petty kind of fiefdoms. They were thinking about how they could create leverage by working together. They became growth multipliers, and it was, it was phenomenal. Uh, and these are not these are not metrics that you just find by looking up an article written by HBR or McKinsey or some other place. These are things you have to um, identify and develop within your organization. There are things that are going to be custom yeah. to your own organizational DNA, to your own code, to the own to your own calculus about what's going to make the needle move for your organization. And all of this is cultured. You look at education and kids cramming, passing tests not really staying at the creative edge of who they can become. And, you know, it just continues on throughout work. And, uh, you know, we are more than a work robot that can show up and take a few orders and, you know, punch punch away at the clock incrementally uh, trying to advance some other goal in our life while we erode away within, because we know right. I am I am not at the edge of my abilities. I'm not growing. I am atrophying, and that's a miserable existence. Yeah, and, and no wonder people leave their jobs. Yeah, They're miserable. They don't know why, so what do they do? They point to the job, they, they point to their experience, and they, and they hope that they can find something better elsewhere. 
But if they don't know what they're looking for, because they don't know what caused them to feel that way, they're just going to repeat the same misery over and over again, the same unfortunate experience over and over. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's why I'm so inspired by Twofold, the founder, team, owner, leader, and team that says, we love our people, we're going to invest in them, and and takes these journeys with us where we transform everything we're talking about today. But I'm also inspired by those people who don't get it at the company they're at, and they go get it for themselves. People that pay out of their own pocket to go through the stuff. It's like, they're going to get it. They're going to find a way. It's a small investment if you if you think about the impact it can have on the rest of your life. Yep. Uh, yeah, my coaching that I went, those ten years that I was coaching was all of my, out of my own pocket. It was it was an investment that was just way worthwhile, uh, way more valuable than my MBA, way more valuable than any education I had gotten previously. Um, so I think if we summarize this for the for our audience, Chris, I'm going to try to summarize it. Then I'd like you to you know, put your spin, uh, since we tend to look at these things through different lenses. I'm thinking about how beautiful it is. When you think about developing healthy leaders, you're thinking about really anyone in the organization who we want as an executive team to be taking the lead in whatever kind of context they operate. So this is an individual focus on developing people who are curious resilient and have and have an understanding of their own um, identity fear, their mm-hmm. own insecurities, and are working toward and have developed the skills to not allow those insecurities to hold them back. And to your to what you said, which is expand their potential, re- help them realize their potential as individuals. So if we can help build healthy leaders, then if you bring a bunch of those healthy leaders together, we should be able to create scalable teams where we have that one plus one equals three, where none of us are bound. Our relationships aren't bound by or dictated by our insecurities, which separate us. Mm-hmm. Right? We recognize our insecurities. We are now bound by a common goal and vision, scalable team. And then by virtue of having an organization full of scalable teams, we end up with a growth culture. So it, it just seems like an amazing kind of additive process, one. But two, it also seems highly doable if I just begin at the most basic level of working with individuals and then kind of taking that knowledge and that wisdom and expanding it across the organization. Yeah, you know, this is the, if you want to go and deconstruct amazing growth cultures, you peel that back. What are you going to find? Teams that are operating high-performing teams. What is a high-performing team made up of? Healthy leaders in the right spot. It takes healthy me to become a healthy we. You go out from that to the the scalable teams, and then you have the growth culture. And so, you know, we value the collective whole, but it starts at the individual level. It's not done till you see it all the way through, but you got to get the order correct. I think this is officially my favorite episode of the year uh, just because it's leading us into a brand new year and a brand new way of thinking and a brand new way of looking at how we can achieve the goals that we have in front of us. Giddy up 2022. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, buddy.
Thanks for listening. If you've learned something or were inspired to try something new, please rate the podcast and share this episode with someone you know. If you'd like to learn more, visit and connect with me, James, at floristgroup.com, F-L-O-R-I-S-S group.com. And if you want to connect with me, Chris, check out SightShift, S-I-G-H-T, shift.com. Peace.